the nation of Israel is dead. That's how the book of Ezra starts. You have to get this to understand everything that follows in the series that we're about to do. At the time the 16th book of the Bible is introduced to us, Israel is at its absolute lowest point. It's a fatally wounded soldier lying in the ditch. It's like the valley of dry bones in Ezra's prophecy. The great nation that had spread under Solomon to cover most of Syria, uh, cover most of Syria in the north to the Red Sea in the south was simply no more. All that was left was the ruins of a once great city, Jerusalem. The mighty walls that protected it were crumbled and the temple to the one true God who had brought the people out of Egypt, taken the promised land and defeated countless enemies was like the temples we visit on holiday. It was in ruins. All of the great heroes of this nation, Joseph, Moses, Gideon, Joshua, Elijah, and the great King David were just bedtime stories. Jerusalem, Israel's capital city, had been burnt to the ground and the last of the nation's people had been taken into captivity by the great Babylonian Empire 49 years earlier. And as the Babylonian Empire gave way to the great Persian Empire, though many people prospered, they remained as exiles under the rule of another nation. All of the wealth of the nation stolen, all the power and influence gone, it was nothing but a memory in the minds of the people held captive. Do you know, had you looked around in those days for proof of God's might, his protection of his people, it wouldn't have been glaringly obvious as you looked at the Jews' story. You say your God is the greatest, but where is proof of this? Your nation has fallen and you are prisoners. Maybe you just have had a few glimmers of hope here and there in rumours of Jewish leaders who have been taken into the Babylonian court. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, they walked through fire and not been burned. Daniel had not been eaten by lions because God was still true. Apart from this, though, all you would have as a believer for up to 70 years, if you'd been the first wave of exiles that was taken, was the promises of prophets old and new. That God will never leave and forsake his people. That he had purposes in destroying Israel. And that restoration was coming. Do you know the point we start this book 538 years before Jesus, Israel desperately needed someone from the outside to come in to heal and revive it from the dead. And the story of Ezra that we're going to follow for the next few weeks is the story of how God steps into this nation and this situation. And over the next hundred years or so, does CPR on Israel 
bringing it back to life. How he takes the dry bones in the wasteland and breathes them back into existence, reforming a whole nation. And guys, as we follow this story, there is so much that we can learn. Firstly, about the character of God and the nature of the God of Christianity. Now, this book leaves us in no doubt that God is the living God who has the power to revive. You know, revive, broken down, re and viver, I believe, simply means to bring back to life again something that is dead and gone. And in Ezra, we see that no efforts of man could have brought the new life back into this nation at this time. Despite this, God works into this most hopeless of situations and brings life back. (laughs) Secondly, we learn so many lessons in this brief story about how this living God would have us live in the world. As we see his people in this book respond to him, lay new foundations of his kingdom, face and endure trials, strip out old ways. We see so much about how he desires to shape us and how much he wants and the ways he wants us to live. And I have faith for two key things as we look through this series, as we look at this story of revival. Firstly, that God will breathe life into those elements of our lives that have become bone dry. And secondly, that as we look at the foundational responses that God asked for in his people, that God is going to lay some fresh flagstones in our lives, correct some foundations in our faith, and shape us afresh into a revival people of God. And if you're not a Christian today, and even listening to a preach is a bit of an alien idea. As we look at this historical account of this part of the nation of Israel, which was the forerunner to Jesus and the church, my hope is you will just be introduced to the true and living God and how he wants us to live our lives. Can I just pray? before we go for chapter one and two. Spirit of God, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the way you inspired it, Lord God, to help us understand who you are, living God, and who you want us to be, Father, so that we're not worshipping any falseness, Lord God, but we're seeing you exactly as you are, having that right perspective that you have called us to have this morning, Lord God, of your greatness, of your goodness, and your glory, Lord Jesus. Spirit of God, I want to pray that you would come as we follow this part of Israel's story and what you did in history, Lord. And I want to pray that you would leave us forever changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So how does this part of Israel's story start? Well, with a bang. If you want to follow, I'm going to turn to the book of Ezra. I'm just going to read the first uh, seven verses of the first two chapters today. Um, Just because chapter two is a big long list of names. 
and I'll hopefully explain a little bit about what that's about, but I feel like I might bore you to death this morning if I just spend my time reading that. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out all the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. There's three things that I just want to notice about the start to this revival story today. First and foremost, I want you to notice and take note that Ezra's revival story starts like every other revival story there has ever been in history, with the person of the Holy Spirit doing his work. And it would be a catastrophic failure on our part to miss what a mighty work he did in this moment to write it off just as a policy change in government. See, Cyrus the Great was at this point in history the most powerful king, presiding over the largest dominion that had ever been. No one previously had come close. He really was a king of kings and kingdoms, unmatched by any other man. All answered to him and he answered to none. This man proclaimed about himself that he was the king of Babylon, the king of Sumer and Akkad, king of the four corners of the world. This was the humble proclamation that he was king of everything. Yet here in the opening verse of Ezra, it is as if the Holy Spirit just passes by and wafts his hand. And this king of kings falls to his knees in service. We're told here in verse 1 that the spirit of God just moved his heart. Just moved it. As if, and it's as if out of nothingness, all of a sudden his innermost being recognized that the God of Judaism was the one true God that had given him everything he had. 
in his edict in verse 2, he actually uses the term Jehovah, the name for Israel's God, to stress this point. This king of all power, in debt to no one, suddenly, from a glimpse of God's spirit, realizes that he is a debtor to the God of this sort of backwards, backwater nation that has been gone for 50 years and dependent on him for everything. And as a result of the depth of the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings, he suddenly acts like one who owes God everything. And as such, he frees God's people, returns everything that was stolen from them, all of the sacred objects in the temple that reminded them of their identity in God. And he gave them a huge amount of wealth to return them to the land God had given them. And he states that Jehovah had assigned him to rebuild the temple where his presence could be encountered on earth and worship could happen again. We're told here that Cyrus acted in such force that he proclaimed essentially that he was God's debtor throughout the whole of his vast kingdom. From what I've meant, this has meant that he kind of used the Twitter of the day, which is to send out heralds to every town in his kingdom and shout out his proclamation. That he owed it all to Jehovah, that Jehovah had given him these things. And he made it law, we read. He put it in writing that all of these kingdoms that I have are because of the God of the Jews. They are his and he has given them to me. Therefore, you and me have to rebuild the temple. Do everything you can with your wealth and goods to make this happen. Cyrus was powerful. But my goodness, what we learn in this moment, in this opening verse, is that the Holy Spirit has an authority and a power that is something totally different, so much higher, that he was the king of this king of kings. John, I just want to pause here because there's something that has to sink in before we go on in this story. Before we meet the first set of leaders stirred to return to Israel under Zerubbabel. Or we see the powerful prophetic preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. Or in 80 years from now in chapter 7 we meet the man Ezra himself. And that is this. The Holy Spirit is the hero of this revival story. It is his power and his work that enabled everything that follows. Just as it was his work that raised Jesus from the dead. His work at Pentecost when he came as the promised greater helper than Jesus to bring 3,000 into an understanding of who Jesus was and the life that he brought. And just as it has been his work in every healing and every awakening of hearts that has happened through history. He has always been the one to bring the reality of God's reviving life into situations. Now, Christy B. spoke two weeks ago wonderfully on the Holy Spirit. 
and our need to have right thinking about him and the fresh calling we're feeling as a leadership not to neglect him but to bring him front and center into all that we do and I want you to to encourage you to go back I think it's a really foundational talk for us as a church and listen to it online if you get the chance but I just want to add something this morning on this subject of the person of the Holy Spirit on the back of what this opening verse in Ezra teaches us and many other points of scripture point to and it's this that I often worry about the way that the Holy Spirit is talked about both inside and outside of the charismatic movements. Outside charismatic churches, so churches that sideline the Holy Spirit, I worry because there is a discussion over the Holy Spirit as if he's a sort of take it or leave it option, like he's like having cheese on your burger at McDonald's. You know, yeah, I kind of feel like cheese today. So I'm going to put cheese on. We're going, to have, we're going to have a fatty burger. No, no, not today. Not today. That just feels a little bit too much. So I'm just going to have the plain burger. Plain Christianity for me today. Inside charismatic, I worry because we often talk and deal with the Holy Spirit as some power to be controlled and released. We talk about him a bit like a pet dog to be held or let off the leash sometimes. Sometimes to go run wild, and sometimes to be tethered tightly for the well-being of people. Real super-Christians and uh, apostles are those who have really learned to harness the power of God. Our eye can be on us rather than him. And in this brief opener to Ezra's revival stories, if we understand it correctly, I don't think this leaves any place for either position. It cries out, do not leave the person of the Holy Spirit out of any part of your Christianity, your daily walk, our gatherings together, your Bible readings. To do this is to leave the very life-bringing power and authority of God out of it. Without relationship with him, without his work, people are just helpless captives in the authorities of this world. But equally, it screams at us that the Holy Spirit is not a dog on a leash. And it is a fundamental theological mistake to think of him as such. Yes, by the grace, by his grace in the New Testament, he says he comes to dwell in us. And as he does, he gives us sovereign gifts and the authority to cast out demons. And he counsels and gives us the gift of his presence inside us. But fundamentally, he does this from a position of awe-inspiring authority. He's the one who made Cyrus bow, the glorious person of God himself with us, who should be bowed down to, listened to, and followed at all times. That's the first thing we see here, that the Holy Spirit is the hero of this story. Secondly, we see this, You're never foolish to trust in God's promises. 
in verse 1, we get this important line, if you look at your Bibles, that God did this work in Cyrus in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. You know, the prophet Jeremiah spoke just before the final destruction of Jerusalem 49 years earlier under King Zedekiah and continued to speak through the early years of exile. And he's mainly miserable. Ruth might disagree if she's here. She loves Jeremiah, doesn't she? But he is pretty miserable. He highlights to the Jews that this destruction and desolation in Israel was because they had lost their trust in God and his spirit. They had stopped seeing and hearing and following him. Throughout this time of exile and death in Israel, he also said lots of stuff like this. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, actually. Jeremiah 29, 10 to 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back from this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper and not to harm. To give you a future and a hope. You know, Jeremiah, in all of the misery, consistently asked people to look up to the horizon. To look to a place of hope beyond what they were seeing around them. Inspired again by the Holy Spirit, he gave his desolate people promises that they could either hold on to or let go of. It was a good word this morning, Rachel. And here, as it's fulfilled, this line essentially shows us that you are never foolish to trust in God's revival promises, even when it takes 70 years to arrive. Freedom Church History is littered with men and women who saw God's revival life break out in situations because they kept trusting the promises of God. Do you know, one of my favorite missionary stories is the story of David uh, Brainard, who in the 1800s went to a completely unchurched people, uh, the American Indians at that time. And he was called, and he lived in squalor and poverty for three years, actually, um, before he saw anything happen. He kept trusting in God. He kept preaching faithfully. And though just as his resolve was giving out, you know, he obediently preached a message on an invitation to the heavenly banquet. And I just want to read you what happened. It says this, the next day, Thursday, August the 8th, 1745, stands as the single most outstanding day in David Brainard's ministry career. He's preached to a gathering of about 65 Indians that afternoon, relating with uncommon freedom the parable of the invitation to the heavenly banquet from Luke 14, 16 to 23. Then suddenly came the gracious, overwhelming move of God's spirit for which he had so longed and prayed for for so long. And he writes this, there was much visible concern amongst them while I was discoursing publicly. But afterwards, when I spoke to one another more particularly, whom I perceived under much concern, the power of God seemed to descend upon the assembly like in a rushing wind. And with astonishing energy, it bore down 
on all before it. I stood amazed at the influence that sees the audience almost universally and can compare it to nothing more aptly than the irresistible force of a mighty torrent or swelling deluge that with its insupportable weight and pressure bears down and sweeps before it whatever was in its way. Almost all persons of all ages were bowed down with concern together and scarce one was able to withstand the shock of the surprising operation. Old men and women, women who'd been drunken wretches for many years and some little children not more than six or seven years of age appeared in distress for their souls as well as persons of middle age and it was apparent these children, some of them at least, were not merely frightened with seeing their general concern but were made sensible of their danger the badness of their hearts and the misery without Christ. And some of them expressed it. The most stubborn heart was now obliged to bow. Because he faithfully, do you see, because he faithfully pursued God's promises, because he faithfully kept going, kept trusting, there was a day when the Holy Spirit came and brought its life. And it was a lasting revival amongst the Indians. You know, the Christian faith has always asked people to set the course of their lives based on promises from God that are not realized, but like Rachel said today, but that we take hold of in faith and hold on to. And what this passage shows us is that as we do this, as we live this way that God has asked us to, by faith in the promises of God, He is always faithful. You are never foolish to trust a revival promise of God. That's the second thing. Do you know the final thing we notice here starts in verse 5, which shows us that when the Holy Spirit moved here, he did not just move on one or two special people, but across the whole nation. Verse 5 says, the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. As the heralds went out across Cyrus's vast kingdom, there was a huge response across all the family heads. And I haven't read it today, but please go away and do it. I know that Fee said she already had and was like, Matt, you're going to preach on a load of names this morning. What are you doing? But as you follow on from, what's that? Oh, thank you so much. Any more praise for me while I'm preaching this morning? Just do with an ego boost always. Please go away and read chapter one and two yourselves. But chapter two is basically a list uh, of where we see massive numbers of people from all backgrounds and professions who are in exile, respond to God's stirring and the call of the heralds. And they went and they brought their resources with them to build the temple. You know, Ezra chapter 2, just one part of it, verses 46 to 49, gives us an idea of the scale of this move and how many were ready to move. The whole company numbered 42,360 besides their 7,337 male and female servants, and they also had 200 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. 
Let's just grasp that for a moment. When the heralds called, when they gave their decree, 42,360 people plus servants and goods were ready to give up their security and wealth to set out on the unknown with God. From all ages and backgrounds, comfort did not hold them. Fear of the unknown did not dissuade them. Loss of wealth did not worry them. And the size of the task did not overwhelm them. As he stirred the people to move from comfort and revive the kingdom of Israel, to be part of his purposes and his plans, to go back to their homeland and towns, 43,000 people, 42,000 people under the lead of Zerubbabel said, yes, I will go with you. And for you, Lord, do the task that you've set before us. Do you know, God has always wanted a people ready in all seasons to respond to his spirit. Who are ready to go for him when the call comes, and to trust his promises above everything else. I think Psalm 96.3 says this for his people. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Mark 16.15's account of the Great Commission is this. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. There is good news to declare and live out through which the Holy Spirit brings life to people. The news that Jesus Christ has died for your sins to separate, that separate you from God and stop you living the way God intended. That you might be fully forgiven And restored to a relationship with the living God and the fullness of life. This is the good news. That Jesus Christ has done it and the Holy Spirit exacts it. And to deliver this message, God has always wanted a people ready to go. And responsive to the Holy Spirit's call to go. Now, whether this is a local go, go. I recently read a story about a, um, a successful restaurateur in America. Like he was, I think, mid-20s and his restaurant business was growing. He was getting a name for himself and he felt the Holy Spirit speak to him and say, listen, I want you to go a different way. I want you to sell up your businesses. I want you to start a charity where you can train homeless people to cook and help them go and get jobs. And he did it. He listened to the go of the Lord. And to this day, I believe that there are many, many people through his ministry starting to get work and have a life that they otherwise wouldn't. But he exchanged comfort, success, wealth, personal glory to follow the go of God in that moment. So if it's a local go, we should be ready to go. Or maybe it's a national or international go to church plants in the nations. 
to move to a poor economy to start a business that changes it, to educate people in other places, to live the gospel out in a different nation that doesn't know it. Whatever it is, we must always be prepared to follow the example of our mighty saviour who is willing to give up all privilege, power and status and come down to earth to get himself down in the dirt and the muck and to heal us and save us. 42,000 people ready to respond in this moment. The moment the electric shock of the Holy Spirit defibrillator came to the hearts of Israel. And the revival from death began. This was the final thing we see. The people were ready to respond. That is how the revival story of Ezra begins. With our hero, the Holy Spirit, moving. With God's faithful promises have been given by the Spirit being realized in history yet again. And a people being ready to respond to heaven's call. Listen, I want to close with a few questions. Can I, we've got time to get the band back up today? Yeah? Can we get the band back up? Is that right? Because God's word is living. And we preach these stories of God and we preach the Bible and we teach it not just so we understand it, but so that it shapes us so that it transforms us, so that it lives inside of us and actually directs us. And um, I just have some questions to finish on today that I wonder, would you stand? Would you stand? And um, we're just going to invite God's spirit, the spirit of ages, (laughs) this king of kings, this king of glory, just to come and have his way with us. And... We're gonna just. I'm just gonna invite the the band maybe just to start playing gently over us. Just, just the, the Bible talks about prophesying and and worshiping with our instruments. And I, I'm just gonna ask them just to start worshiping a little bit, just as we invite God's Spirit. And I'm gonna ask a few questions as we do that. And I just want you to just invite the Holy Spirit of revival, the God of revival, just to come and do His work in you. As we do. Spirit of God, thank you so much. Hmm. Question one would be this. Are there places that are dead in your faith? Or in your life that you have given up on that need reviving? Anything where you're trusting God for a situation or a person. Or maybe you're trusting church or your heart for worship or a calling you once had has died and needs reviving. Is there a place in your life like this right now? Just allow the Holy Spirit just to move just a second. I'm just going to pray. Spirit of God, where there are parts of our lives that are just dry and arid, Lord. 
where we've given up, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray, would you come with your life-giving spirit and breathe life back into those. Spirit of God, come. Question two. Is there anything you need to say sorry to the Holy Spirit for? Has he been your take it or leave it part of the God's heads? Or has he been a bit like that power that you wanted to control rather than the one who commanded Cyrus the Great to fall to his knees whom we're to follow in all situations? Question three. Are there places where skepticism over promises of God now rules in your heart? Question four. Are you ready to respond to God's call? Would you have been one of the 42,000 who upped and went to rebuild the temple of God? A great personal cost. Are you always poised to be part of the revival of God's calling to revival in every situation? Or are you just resting now? Are you comfortable? And question five, if you don't know him, are you ready to let the Holy Spirit bring you to life through the power of what Jesus did on the cross. He's here this morning to do that. Spirit of God, I just pray bring life. I just ask you to bring your life. Lord, wherever we need it. Lord Jesus. Spirit of God, we want to go where you go. We want to follow you. Lord, we're so desperate to see those moments like David Brainerd saw. Lord God, where the promise of your spirit breaking out is realized in our day. Lord God, Lord, this city needs your revival. We need your revival, Lord God. Spirit, we just invite you to come. Lord, come be with us. Come transform us. Come do your work, the work you've done throughout the ages, I pray. In Jesus' name I ask.